From the Los Angeles Times, this is Asian Enough. Each week on this podcast, we talk to one Asian American guest about the joys, the complications, and everything else that comes along with being Asian American. I'm one of your hosts, Johanna Buya. And I'm your other host, Suhana Hussein. I'm a business reporter here at The Times. Suhana, I'm so excited to be hosting this week's episode with you. Me too. I'm really excited to be one of the hosts of this season. And I'm really looking forward to bringing my specific flavor of Asian to the show. Yes. And this might be a little bit confusing for a lot of people who we work with because Suhana, you and I get confused for each other a lot. Yes, like constantly. And I think it's because we're both Muslim and we're both brown. And I guess our names sound vaguely similar, (laughs) but we don't look alike. Well, I'm excited to dispel that myth today on the podcast. Today, we're joined by Anthony Ocampo, the author of The Latinos of Asia, How Filipino Americans Break the Rules of Race. Anthony is a Filipino writer and scholar who's tackling questions of race, immigration, and LGBTQ issues, specifically focusing on the Filipino American experience. He's also an associate professor of sociology at Cal Poly Pomona, and he's currently working on a second book, To Be Brown and Gay in LA. It chronicles the lives of gay men of color from immigrant families. People experience serious trauma and serious difficulties because they were gay and growing up in an immigrant family and being people of color that I felt like you can't just like erase that just because we have gay marriage doesn't mean like all that stuff never happened and everything's going to be hunky-dory. Our conversation with sociologist and writer Anthony Ocampo coming up after this short break. Welcome back to Asian Enough. Here is our conversation with writer and sociologist, Anthony Ocampo. Thanks for joining us, Anthony. Thank you for having me. We just kind of wanted to start out by asking you a little bit about your background. There's been this kind of gap in Filipino academic research. And and I think you're part of this sort of growing number of scholars that is focusing on the lived experience of of Filipino-Americans. Can you tell us a little bit about your own childhood and what motivated you to focus on Filipino Americans in your work? Yeah, so I'm a son of immigrants. My parents migrated from the Philippines in 1980, and then I I was born shortly thereafter in 1981. And I grew up in a very, I would say, like robust Filipino American community. So I'm, I, I grew up most of my life in Eagle Rock, which folks uh, may know has a significant number of Filipino American residents. Um, and I also, like many Filipinos in this country, grew up with a very, very large extended family that I spent a lot of time with. So most weekends were spent at like Filipino social gatherings. Um, my parents' house was the place where when new relatives were migrating from the Philippines and getting settled in the U.S., they'd often stay with my parents for a number of weeks to a number of years. And so I just had a plethora of Filipino reference points. And then, of course, like because of where I lived, the school that I went to also had a, a large number of Filipinos. And so I guess I've always had the opportunity to 
just observe how interesting Filipino-American culture is in my everyday life, from the food to the intergenerational dynamics to visits to the home country. Um, and that's, that's, I guess, where all the interest started. Yeah, and you posted on your Instagram account once that the reason that you write and, and your vision as an academic um, was that so Filipino kids have the opportunity to read about themselves. I mean, can you tell me a little bit about you know why that's so important to you? Yeah, I mean, growing up for, I don't know what drew me to it, but I was... I was like super, super interested in like civil rights related stuff. So as a kid, like, you know, when most kids are reading like, I don't know, kid fiction, my mom would buy me biographies of like Thurgood Marshall and like Martin Luther King. <laughs> um, and I just like was a nerd in that way. And I, I think to the credit of my elementary school teachers, I had a couple that in retrospect, they had very like activist orientation. So whenever we would have like, book report projects, they would always have us like write about civil rights leaders or important people of color in history. And I don't think they ever explicitly talked about like why they did it. But I mean, I remember writing like book reports on like Ida B. Wells and, you know, doing projects on trying to learn our parents' immigration history. And so to the credit of my elementary school teachers, many of whom were either Filipina or Latina, those were arenas where I got to I guess I, I never felt like Filipinos were like not at the center. It wasn't until I went to high school and college that I learned like, oh, shoot, like the Filipinos don't matter in a whole lot of other contexts. For example, like a common Asian-American story we'll hear is about that experience of like bringing like some ethnic cuisine to lunch. But at my elementary school, it was totally normal for kids to bring like adobo and rice or spam and rice for lunch. Like that wasn't unusual. And then, you know, when we were waiting for our parents after school, you know, you'd see like all the Filipino moms and dads just like waiting outside the school, like making chismis or gossip with each other. And so it just became like, the norm for all of my classmates to have parents that like migrated from the Philippines or some other country, maybe like Mexico or El Salvador. So I never really thought about how important of a role that played into why I started becoming a writer. But looking back and, and comparing the experiences of other Asian Americans that say grew up in places where there were fewer Asian Americans around or they were predominantly white, you know, I just didn't have that same experience. And I think my like fervor to want to like research and write about Filipino Americans in some ways grew out of that childhood experiences in ways that I'm only starting to realize now. That's so cool. So, I mean, you are a writer. You wrote a book called Latinos of Asia. Can you talk a little bit about that title and where that title comes from? You know, when I went to college, I went from like living in Eagle Rock, which is like 20% Filipino to uh, I went to Stanford for undergrad and there was like 20 Filipinos in the entire first year class. And so that was a very weird experience because I think most of the other Asian American students at the time were mostly East Asian, um, Korean, Chinese American, maybe like a, a good number of Vietnamese students, but Filipinos were pretty low in number. And I think that culture shock of going to an undergrad where folks like didn't know how to place me, right? It made me second guess myself so much. 
if I felt like my white classmates didn't find any value in what I was talking about, I, it affected like my level of confidence in the classroom too. So I, I found myself really struggling in school. And it was actually in taking ethnic studies, like Asian American studies, uh, Latino studies, Chicano studies, African American studies. I feel like those were the first classroom environments where I was able to confront these, these questions of identity. And in my first year of college, I, I saw an essay that was published by a graduate student from UC Berkeley. Her name is Elizabeth Pizarus. She now has her doctorate, of course. But she wrote this essay on a blog that I happened to come across back in the year 1999, <laughs> where she said something like, sometimes it feels like Filipinos aren't really Asian because of this long history of Spanish colonialism. They have all these cultural markers that are closer to like Latinos, Mexican-Americans in particular. And that stood out to me because I grew up in L.A. And so I was able to sort of like witness the cultural overlaps between Filipinos and Latinos like throughout my school experiences, my going to church, uh, my neighborhood experiences. It felt like there were so many things that we had in common from like everyday words the, the strong connection to Catholicism. And then, of course, like our last names, like my last name's Ocampo. My classmates' last names were like Rodriguez and Torres and, and Gonzalez. And there would be classmates who were both Filipino and Mexican with the same last name. And so I often like thought in my head, like Filipinos have this link with Latinos that I feel like doesn't get flushed out enough when I was taking Asian American studies classes or whenever I would read stories on like the LA Times or the New York Times about Asians, it often didn't include Filipinos. So basically I like spent most of college like writing essays, like very confused essays trying to like work out what was going on. And that eventually became like the the seedlings of the the book that got published a decade and a half later. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about names that are, are Spanish sounding. My grandpa's name was literally Bienvenido. <laughs> like, you know, mo most of my family have Spanish sounding names. It just comes up all the time where I'm like, oh yeah, trabajo, it's the same word. Like, totally. There's so much Spanish within Tagalog. And I think people don't really realize that. I mean, they realize it, but maybe they don't hear it enough. But there was 333 years of Spanish colonialization in the Philippines. Like, there are huge, huge overlaps between two cultures here. Yeah. And I was thinking about like the term Asian American and how that came up in the 1960s. But like Spanish colonialism, was, as you mentioned, like three centuries. So in so many ways, it's almost as if the links with Latino cultures has sort of extended further than like the political identity of Asian American. I mean, I'm oversimplifying, of course, but like I felt like there was more that needed to be said about the connections between Filipinos and Latinos. And the more research I did, the more I found that there were numerous examples when like Filipinos tended to align themselves with Latinos more. Dating circumstances, friendship circles, um, and the way that strangers perceive who they were. So for example, my partner Joe, he's Filipino, just like me, son of immigrants. But everybody assumes, Filipinos included, that he's Mexican-American by the way he looks. And that wasn't an uncommon experience when I was starting to do research for the book. The title of the book, to go back to the question, was something that came up from like so many other people. They would say these things like, 
Filipinos are like the Mexicans of Asia or Filipinos are like the Latin Asians or the Hispanic Asians. And this was not like anybody's attempt to try to say Filipinos should just be lumped into like the Latino category. This was just like the way that people were able to sort of like crystallize this like unique position of Filipinos vis-a-vis Asians and Latinos in the U.S. For sure. I mean, and you're talking about an aspect of the kind of racial ambiguity of Filipinos that I think a lot of people try to understand right now that kind of lends itself to Filipinos' exclusion from the typical AAPI title. We've written about, you know, this idea that Filipinos feel a connection to Asian Americanness in different ways and at different times in different contexts. Um, and, you know, personally for me, I've had sort of complex feelings about how to access communities of solidarity that have sort of built up around the Asian community right now and within the Asian community because I don't read as AAPI, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. and even if I was full Filipina, I wouldn't read as AAPI. For you, I mean, in this moment when there's this sort of show of solidarity and it's supposed to be this like really powerful moment of unity, I mean, how do you personally engage in those communities when it can sometimes still feel pretty exclusionary? I think about all the anti-Asian violence that is happening. And fairly recently, like in front of one of the grocery stores that my parents go to in Eagle Rock, there was a a woman who, quote unquote, looks Asian, you know, but was a Mexican-American 70-year-old woman that was attacked because she like looked Asian. I think about all the anti-Asian violence, not just the attacks, but the fact that like it's Filipina nurses that are the ones that are like literally dying to save lives. That in some ways, that's like an attack in and of itself too. Because you think about who are the ones who are most likely to be put in vulnerable situations? Filipina nurses, you know? To be frank, like given that this this terrible stuff is happening, it makes me feel more Asian than ever. And oftentimes when folks think about like how strongly you feel towards an identity or not, it's often driven, unfortunately, as you mentioned, by like these super, super racist incidents. But at the same time, that is not divorced from the fact that like when you talk to Filipinos and you ask them like how closely do you identify with Asian, there's still a lot of circles where Filipinos feel like excluded from Asian American spaces because as you mentioned, they don't look the part, you know, when people think of Asian, they're not often thinking about like the brown kid with the last name Rodriguez with the rosary around their neck, right? Right. And, And I think that this is the other part of this moment is that we have an opportunity to really expand who's included as Asian American. What happened in Indianapolis is an example of anti-Asian violence. It happened to people who are Sikh, brown Asians. And so we got to like incorporate that into the conversation. It can't just be the East Asians or the folks that like look quote unquote quintessentially Asian that get looped into the convo. For sure. I mean, it's something that, you know, I deal with on a daily basis as someone who is half South Asian and then half Filipina, you know, Uh so it's both these types of Asian are not what people typically think when you think Asian. And on top of that, I wear hijab. So people are like, she must be Middle Eastern. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. So my own personal like questions about my own Asian identity because I'm multi-ethnic, but then there's like this constant uh, negation of my Asian identity by other people because they don't think that I am. 
Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And I think like Filipinos can be guilty of this exclusionary act themselves because like Filipinos will assume that everybody is is Catholic. Like I've seen Filipino Catholics, even in my own family, like they don't know what to do with Filipinos who are Protestant and like let alone like <laughs> Filipinos who are Muslim or, right. uh, you know, um, of other religion or have no religious affiliation. It's just like mind boggling to them. And then their prejudices emerge in the way that they talk about other Filipinos. And that's a problem. And that's not something that's just, of course, happening among Filipino Americans. We see that sort of exclusionary act happening in the Philippines as well, given that like the Muslim population is smaller. But I think sometimes people get locked into this idea that identities are like, they mean like something like that cannot be debated. But in reality, these are social constructions. Like this is the cool part about being a sociologist. You get to witness how these categories have changed meaning across time and space. Right. That's really interesting. I, When you're talking about how identities change over time, do you feel like it's sort of important to like build out the diversity of what people think of as Asian? Or I guess, are there other sort of ways that you've thought about identity that veer away from that? Yeah, you know, I think in writing the book, one of the things I wanted to show is that even if people are not of the same like racial category, so for example, Filipinos and Mexican-Americans that grew up in LA, I wanted to sort of highlight that like just because folks aren't part of the same umbrella category, that doesn't mean that they're less likely to connect. I wanted to show that like these identity categories, they really depend on the context. They really depend on the way like certain identities are given value and meaning in different spaces. So for example, it was really interesting to see how like a lot of Filipinos that I interviewed for the book would say like, oh, in high school, I felt Asian because Filipinos were the largest Asian group in like Eagle Rock or Carson. But then all of a sudden when I went to UC Berkeley <laughs> and I encountered like East Asians in larger numbers than like my my elementary and high school, mm -hmm. all of a sudden I felt like I wasn't Asian enough to like tie it back to the title of the podcast. Um, that was a common, common, <laughs> common story of like Filipinos not feeling Asian enough. More of our conversation with the sociologist and writer Anthony Ocampo coming up after this short break. Stay with us. Welcome back to Asian Enough. Here's the rest of our conversation with Anthony Ocampo. So I want to go back. We're switching gears a little bit, but you mentioned Filipino nurses. And I think this is something that's really important to me personally. I know that your mom is a retired nurse as well. But you wrote something in an article for a publication called Context about the marginalization of Filipinos that I want to read a little bit of. Yeah. You said, Filipino lives have always been a part of American nation building. So have Filipino deaths. A million Filipinos died as a result of the Philippine-American War. A quarter million Filipinos fought in World War II and were subsequently denied their veteran benefits. American health care would be in crisis without the thousands of new Filipino immigrant nurses staffing U.S. hospitals each year. And yet sociology barely knows we exist. So this idea of Filipino deaths being a part of American nation building just, you know, it sits really heavily with me. Um, but it rings especially true, like you said, uh, for Filipino nurses right now. We've talked about the stat on this podcast before, but 
Filipinos only make up 4% of the total nursing population, but make up one third of those deaths. Um, So yeah, let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, how do you make sense of that? And why do you think, you know, Filipinos are being impacted so greatly right now? That's such a, that question lands at such a funny time because, you know, even though the United States is experiencing mass vaccinations and I'm starting to witness folks get back into their quote unquote normal life. Mm -hmm. Like I still think about the fact that like we just had entire households in the Philippines that like are going through COVID right now. Even though like the United States specifically is doing better, quote unquote, Filipinos, given that we have such close ties to families back home, like we're still going through it. Um, It was really hard to focus to knowing that my mom was like scrambling for money to try to like send over to the Philippines. Um, The fact that like she was up all night trying to figure out if my cousin who was getting really sick was able to get a bed, get oxygen. It just was... Like, that's part of the Filipino-American experience with COVID, too. And I think that that's not getting as much mm-hmm. airtime. It's a it's a hard thing to think about because I, 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 I grew up with this, I don't know where it came from, but this belief that, like, as a former American colony, like, Filipinos were, I don't want to say people framed it as lucky, but, like, Filipinos had these certain advantages because we were familiar with like Western culture. And then I think about like, as I read more and more and I, I read more history and read about the the specific details of how that process came about, it was under very, very bloody circumstances. So, I mean, think about it. In the year like 1901, 1902, a million Filipinos died in the name of America's pursuit of benevolent assimilation, which is the catchphrase they use when referring to the Philippines. Like, oh, we got to help our little brown brothers like learn how to self-govern. Um, but in reality, mm-hmm. we, have to we have to civilize them. them. We have to sanitize mm-hmm. them. And part of that project meant like creating health facilities that would allow that process to unfold. And then, of course, like when World War II happened, again, Filipino bodies, Filipino people became part of that project and so it's just it just it it makes me think about how Filipino people have just been thought of as disposable labor (laughs) that's a hard thing to grapple with when you're when you're when you're thinking about that truth alongside the fact that so many Filipinos are framing their immigrant experiences like we're so lucky to be in the United States this place has given us so many opportunities it's it's just it's paradoxical but both things can be true at the same time definitely i mean there's this long history of the US recruiting Filipino nurses directly from the Philippines um and Filipino families back in the day having to like sell their land in order to cover mm-hmm. that recruiting fee just like sacrificing a lot in order to come here all for the promise of economic opportunity and the other opportunities of you know being in the US do you feel like there's a connection between how all of that happened in that history and you know the impact on and dev- devastation frankly of Filipino families right now during the pandemic Oh, absolutely. I mean, you got to think about this question of why Why did these people need to leave in the first place? Like, why do young women in the province, uh, and of course men too, like, 
sacrifice so much so that they can get into nursing school, maybe travel to Manila hours away from their family to go to nursing school for the chance to go to the United States so they can live somewhere where they, you know, may not know that many people and like Mm -hmm. eventually send most of their earnings back home to the Philippines. It's just it the cycle is just it's it's hard to think about how like the circumstances that's driving the Filipinos out is anchored in like the way colonialism devastated the country economically in so many ways and created like a dependency on on the US in so many ways. So I think about like your average Filipino nurse and I don't know about you but I meet a lot of Filipino nurses <laughs> that like because of the 3 day on 3 day off they work at two different hospitals, you know? So I think about just the tremendous mm-hmm. amount of stress that like working two hospital jobs can impose on, on on someone's body. Like people are always talking about pre-existing conditions, pre-existing conditions, right? And there's a sociologist by the name of E-Viewing at um, the University of Chicago who talks about how this term pre-existing conditions has this way of erasing the structural inequality that people experience that leads to those pre-existing conditions like diabetes or high cholesterol, high high blood pressure. And so I just think about like, to use my mom as an example, like she worked as a nurse. She was extremely dedicated. She loved her job. She loved her doctors and coworkers. She had a community of Filipino nurses. But for my mom's entire nursing career, she wasn't just providing for one household. She was providing for my family and her other family back home because it's often the immigrant nurse that is best positioned to help people in their most vulnerable moments. And if you're struggling economically, those vulnerable moments are going to happen a lot. So I think about just like the mental health impact of like working this this job in this incredibly, incredibly tough moment on top of the stuff that it was already stressing you out. Like being the economic backbone of of families in two different countries. That has to have an effect on the physical health of these nurses. Right. I mean, it's like you can love your job, but if, you know, people are depending on you for that income, like you're also stuck in that job. Like you don't really have the option of saying, I don't mm-hmm. want to work anymore. You know, my mom is a nurse um, and my tita, my aunt was a nurse in Queens and she actually passed away early from COVID, like early on in the pandemic. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. Yeah, I appreciate that. But yeah, I mean, I think like their two stories are just really interesting. And you're you're talking about supporting family transnationally. Like my tita was supporting my cousins who lived in the Philippines, um, but also her daughter who lived here. And, you know, my mom also is supporting her family. I actually recently interviewed my mom. I was curious about why she was doing this and why she went into nursing because I'm really interested in how the paths into nursing for Filipinos has led to this really, you know, recent phenomenon and devastation. And for her, it was purely like duty and honor. Basically, you know, nursing is a a very um, uh, honorable profession. There's a lot of fulfillment you get from serving people and being one of those people who can help them, you know, get better, see them through their illness. You know, much like what you were saying about your mom, it was like, it was an honor to be able to be a nurse. It was an honor to be able to serve people and help people. Um, And we used to beg her, like absolutely beg her to retire, especially after my tita passed away. Um, And she said, no, like it would be an abdication of her duty. 
I I told uh, everyone that if I do it, it will be like running away from my responsibilities, abandoning a ship where uh, we are in the height of pandemic. And that will be a dishonor to to my profession and and that will be against who I am as a, a Filipino, a nurse, and as a person. It kind of hits at that paradox where it's like, you know, on the one hand, there are people who are doing this because they need the money. Mm-hmm. But then there are other people who are doing this purely for like that dedication. And even that dedication is the thing that's keeping them in that career. Did you ever ask your mom, you know, why she became a nurse? And how has she been reacting to some of these statistics as they've come out? Yeah, um, my mom, <laughs> I think she went into nursing because it was, you know, she grew up with a single parent. She was the oldest of seven lost her dad at a very young age. And so for her, she's she's sort of been the the one that everyone, oh my gosh, I feel so like emotional, like thinking about like, my mom went to nursing school. She was like 16 years old, you know? And part of the reason she went into it is because already back then, they knew that that would be like the ticket for upward mobility mm-hmm. for the whole family, you know? Um, and I think like my mom, she admits that, She's so in love with her job mm-hmm. and her craft and she's brilliant at it. But, you know, back then it wasn't necessarily the first thing that she wanted to do. But for someone that knew how important it was to have economic resources for your family mm-hmm. to survive, um, it was so necessary. Like her mother, my, my grandma was a widow. She was a seamstress. You know, she never went to school because of World War II. She was busy like hiding in caves so that, you know, she wouldn't get attacked by um, mm-hmm. Japanese soldiers. And so like I just think about how much pressure that must have felt like to know that you're the one by like age 16 or 17 that had to carry (laughs) your whole family um, and how much that can stress someone out. But I think like, like what's interesting about what you said about the duty thing, like my mom's been retired for a couple of years, but when someone hits her up with a question, she like goes into nurse mode. She would like phone the doctors figure out a way to help people get their scans. Um, Do they need to speak with a social worker? Does that social worker need to speak Spanish? Like she still does the nurse thing even in retirement, which I think like is emblematic of how a lot of um, Filipino nurses sort of like the nurse thing is not just a job for so many of them. It becomes inherent to their identity. Yeah, I mean, you were talking about your mom helping people in the Philippines make sure that they have hospital beds and, and proper medical care. I mean, she's a transnational nurse. Uh-huh. So many of our nieces went to nursing school. And I know that, like, both my grandmother and my mom, like, were regular sources of support. You know, I have one cousin who just got approved to come to the United States coming in a couple weeks. Actually, it's the sibling of my cousin who just, experienced COVID oh, wow. and was was in the ICU and the ER, had to go through like draining of the lungs. Yeah, his sister just got the green light to come to the United States. And I think that in a lot of ways, that's my mom's legacy, like helping them set up shop. They're going to be in LA for a couple of weeks to get settled. It goes beyond the actual like job. And it it's just so, it's so hard for me to think about those people being the ones that are dying alone because of of covid i can't like specify who said it but i've talked to a number of filipino nurses just like in my broader extended network whether it's my partner's family or or mine and they talk about how like they often are in a position where they if they're feeling unsafe 
they don't feel like they can argue against the boss and say, I, I feel unsafe in doing that. Like their worries are, aren't allowed to come into play. And I think that that dedication to nursing can somehow lead to like, I don't know, them being put in the worst situations with the least amount of like recourse for fighting against that. Right. I've spent a lot of time sort of talking to retail workers and others sort of on the front lines during the pandemic. And I think, you know, that dynamic is is true of a lot of workers generally just feeling unable to sort of push back on certain things that are asked of them that put them at risk. But I think what you're saying is so true that you can see how you're not going to say, oh, no, I can't do this. Yeah, yeah. No, it's so true. And I think like, if we think about all of the examples in the medical field about like black women not being believed or like about their pain or or even like healthcare workers of color being subordinated or subjugated to like unfair treatment you can't help but think about how you know filipino nurses a large chunk of whom are women of color like like there was a couple of years ago in California like where like Filipino nurses were told they can't speak Tagalog in the workplace oh, to each other. Oh, wow. Like certain places banned them from speaking Tagalog. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you take that as just an example of like how Filipino nurses can be devalued just for like being who they are. <laughs> right. Let alone like in a moment of tremendous stress like COVID, like how does that racialized gendered treatment of Filipino nurses affect the way that they're being positioned to do certain types of work that are more high risk. Just to um, pivot a bit, we wanted to hear about the book that you're working on. It's called To Be Brown and Gay in LA. Can you talk a little bit about what what it's about and what kind of inspired it? Sure. Um, I started thinking about writing this book maybe like in the mid-2000s. What year is it? It's like 2021. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, like maybe the late... 2000s. You know, I started thinking about like children of immigrants who happen to be gay. So in, in sociology, that's my area of expertise. I studied the children of immigrants, mm-hmm. uh, Filipino, Latinx, other Asian Americans. So when I was in grad school and I would be reading like books and articles about children of immigrants, what was really funny to me was that in all of the books and articles I was reading in this particular field, I wasn't encountering a lot of stories that centered on like children of immigrants who happen to also be gay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was in my 20s. So like I was spending a lot of time in like West Hollywood. <laughs> like, you know, like a typical day, I go to class at UCLA. I go meet up with my classmates to go study or work on stuff at the coffee shop. And then like when 10 o'clock hit, I'd be like, time to go to the club. And so <laughs> that was like my, <laughs> that was my routine. Um Oh my God, if my mom and dad hear this, they're going to be like, what? Um, (laughs) Why not just sort Mm -hmm. of like pursue a full-on study where I just like interview, not specifically the people I knew, but like in that larger community that I was finding myself to be a part of. There were a lot of queer POC spaces in LA. So it was very easy to become like one of the usual suspects at the bar or the club. (laughs) Oh my God. Um, so I had a large network, you know, I was also single. So it was very like, I wasn't boring and a homebody like I am now. But like, so yeah, I basically interviewed folks that I would encounter in these spaces. Of course, I reached out to like 
other gay folks of color that were part of like college student organizations. And there was a couple things that motivated me to write this book. Um, number one, I was struggling with my own sexual identity for a while. And so to be honest, I really just wanted to talk to other folks whose background I had a similarity to that like were navigating the same sort of like constraints as people that were, um, you know, not straight. And so I feel like I just was wanting to learn from them. And I interviewed folks that like had really great relationships with their families and other folks that were still like, not yet sharing like that part of their identity. So folks that were all over the spectrum in terms of how open they were about their being gay or queer. So number two, it was around the time that like same-sex marriage was becoming legalized, right? And so there was this period in the in the late 2000s when like Prop 8 was overturned, you know, the thing that was like banning same-sex marriage in California. And I was having a lot of encounters where folks were just like almost talking about being gay as if it was like, oh, it's totally accepted now. Like no one cares anymore. And I'm just like, okay, yeah, we're in the year 2013. But you got to remember that from age zero to age 20, like that's a lot of ish. I, You know, folks were going through it before this period when same-sex marriage was like law of the land, people experienced serious trauma and serious difficulties because they were gay and growing up in an immigrant family and being people of color that I felt like you can't just like erase that just because we have gay marriage doesn't mean like all that stuff never happened and everything's going to be hunky-dory. So I was like, I was really uncomfortable when people were so accepting that they were willing to forget all the challenges that came with being a gay person growing up in LA. And I felt like I wanted to honor like all of the creativity and labor and everyday choreography that these men had to endure in order to just be themselves. And so it was really interesting to hear them talk about like knowing that you were different. It affected so many aspects of like immigrant family life, relationships with the ethnic community, your experience in school, even in college. And I felt like I wanted to honor that story, which is why I, I wrote this book. Okay, Anthony, so before we let you go, it's time for our weekly segment called Asian Enough Confessions, where we share a time or thing that made us feel that we're not Asian enough so that we can unpack it together, kind of like group therapy. Um, so I will start with one. There, this story, I'm not even sure if it like qualifies, but it's a story I think about a lot. But I was um, I was in the Philippines, I think like three or four years ago um, and we were in Vigan. And like for those of you who don't know, um, Vigan is a place that's in the northern part of the, the Philippines. Um, it's this big tourist attraction. So there are people from all over the Philippines here. Um, and I'm wearing this like really colorful kimono. I'm wearing my hijab. I'm walking around with my family like... I obviously do not blend in, but at this point, having gone back and forth to the Philippines, I'm used to not fitting in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but like I'm walking through Vegan and these like two young people walked up to me and they're like, in Tagalog, like, can I take a picture with you? And I was like, 
all right, sure, why not? <laughs> so I was like, yeah, we took a picture. And then they asked me again in Tagalog, like, where where are you from? And I didn't, I don't fully understand Tagalog. So they asked it again in English. And I was like, oh, New York. And they were like very disappointed by that answer. And, oh my gosh. Yeah, I definitely still felt like ostracized um, yeah. and like called out. But I, I think the reality is they probably thought I was part of one of like the Muslim indigenous people that live in, in various parts of the Philippines. So that's me. <laughs> Can I ask you do, you, do you enjoy the moments when you're like, I'm like helping someone reconfigure how they think about the world. Like those moments when you quote unquote confuse people, like are those fun moments for you or are they stressful moments? Like they can you? be fun, right? Like sparingly they're funny and fun. And like if the person is like genuinely curious, it's fun, right? Mm -hmm. But if it's like happening often and if, you know, people are saying it in sort of a condescending way or they're not asking, they're telling you what you are, you know, those are the moments yeah. where you're just like, this is exhausting. And as someone who is visibly Muslim, like that just like adds so much confusion and complexity to it. Uh -huh. I always say that it is like a huge advantage to be someone who is like, you know, visibly anything and stands out in a sea of white male journalists. Um, I think it's mm -hmm. only helped my career. But I do think like in life, it can get very tiring. <laughs> like I don't need to be the person who like changes your worldview. That's not on me, I don't think. Yeah. No, that's that's fair. No, I hear you. Yeah. Um, so Anthony, do you have an Asian enough confession? I do. Oh my gosh. I knew I was going to have to answer this. So I was like <laughs> running through all the, I mean, I wrote a whole book about Filipinos not feeling Asian. So I was like, what story do I pick? But I feel like there's, there are a lot of moments. So I remember uh, when I was at UCLA, there was like an Asian American fraternity passing out like flyers to get like Asian people to donate bone marrow. And I remember like, I watched who they passed it out to. And the, the fraternity was mostly like East Asian folks. So I remember walking by them and I, and they didn't hand me a flyer. And so I was like, let me try walking by them again. And again, they didn't hand me a flyer. They were like only giving it to people that were Asian, but like their version of Asian. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, that's one feeling not Asian enough. Like, take my bone marrow. You need it. I know. Although I was like, can I even donate bone marrow? Because like, as a gay man, like, there's like rules about donating oh, yeah. blood. Those extremely yeah. homophobic rules. Yeah. So, um, let alone like bone marrow. <laughs> but the story I was going to share was in my last year at UCLA, <laughs> when I was like super broke and had like, zero dollars in my saving account and negative two in my checking account i saw this flyer in in my building like you know at, at campuses they always have like research studies get paid mm -hmm. this much money for for doing this so the flyer said get paid i think like 200 dollars, which is a lot for me because i had mm -hmm. no money and it said do you drink alcohol are you asian american so i was like check and check so <laughs> So, like, I phoned the contact number and I said, I'm down for your study. Like, sign me up mm -hmm. next week. And then I, like, made this, like, off-the-cuff off the remark where I was like, oh, you know, but, like, I'm Filipino, so I don't really get the flush. Like, mm -hmm. as a joke. Uh, you know, because I was like, maybe it's about, like, Asian oh. globe. I just was, like, <laughs> guessing. Like, I just said it as, like, a joke. And so... At that point, the person I was on the phone with said, oh, I'm so sorry, you don't qualify for the study. Whoa. And I said, why? And they said, we can only have Japanese, Korean, 
and Chinese participants. And I probed a little more and I was like, why? And she's like, because we have to have a genetically similar sample. Those were the exact (laughs) words that they used. And so like, here I was... (laughs) Spending my whole academic career reading about like how Filipinos were part of the Asian American movement mm-hmm. and but feeling excluded. And I was like, oh my gosh, here's this like researcher who's probably not even Asian telling me like, sorry, you don't count as Asian for this study. So that was my not Asian enough um, story. So I did not get my free drinks <laughs> and yeah. I did not get my $200. Um, but I was like, you know, this is kind of like a representative of a larger phenomenon of like Filipinos being boxed out of like Asian American things. Wow, she literally told you not not Asian enough. You're not Asian enough. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess I should say an, an Asian enough confession. Yeah. I, I'm a smiley Muslim, so we have sort of like devotional music called like Ginans and and I've been sort of spending time like practicing some of them with my mom. But whenever I do this, like my sister's just like, can you please stop? Like you're a horrible singer. Like, please, please don't do this. Oh. <laughs> and so like, <laughs> it has nothing to do with like me being Asian, but I just think there's this, like I'm I'm trying to like, I'm trying to be more Asian, but like, <laughs> but it's just not working. So. <laughs> but the haters are the blocking haters, you. Okay, my sister are, are shutting <laughs> me down. <laughs> Do you have an Asian Enough confession you want to share with us? Call us at 213-986-5652. That's 213-986-5652. Maybe we'll even play it on the show. Okay, that's it from us here at Asian Enough. Thank you to Anthony Ocampo for joining us. And thank you, our listeners, for listening. And don't forget, if you love the show, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really, really helps people find the show. Asian Enough is hosted by me, Johanna Buya. And by me, Suhana Hussein. Our producer is Asal Asanapur. And our executive producer is Abby Fentress Swanson. Our engineer is Mike Heflin. Our original music was composed by Andrew Epin. Special thanks to Julia Turner and Ben Musig. This podcast is dedicated to the memory of our founding producer, Lina Anwar. Come back next week for another great episode of Asian Enough. It's me and Suhana again talking to Dalit rights activist and musician, Thenmori Saundararajan. While we have lived for centuries under the caste system, we are also one of the oldest resistance movements in the world. And to, to name that resilience is really the pathway to understanding our commitment to freedom, despite the perniciousness of the ideologies that animate caste apartheid. And remember, don't let the haters get you down. Oh, man. When the K-Town karaoke rooms open up, that would be amazing. Let's do it. Let's do it. (laughs) 